Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And um, if you have any questions or comments for us, go ahead and you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can put them on the comments section of Podbean, which is where we create our podcast. So anyway, this is episode 120, 120. And uh, yeah, I started this in 2019. Yeah, that's that's actually a lot. That's not quite one a week, but you know, pretty close, pretty close. So anyway, let's get down to what's been going on. And uh, oh, the first thing is, of course, the regular media is squelching it. But, you know, Hunter Biden, the man who's owned by the Red Chinese, apparently they found more stuff on his laptop. And as if the the energy stuff in Ukraine wasn't enough, the Burisma where they paid him, you know, millions of dollars to just be a Biden. Um, apparently the Red Chinese did the same thing. They paid him several million dollars to just to be a Biden, you know, open the door, get old Sleepy Joe to sign off on something or, or Sleepy Joe's friends to, to back something. Um, this is really bad. This is really, really bad. This guy... You know, there, there was all that scrutiny over Trump's kids. And whether you like them or not, they passed the scrutiny. They could not find anything on them that they were doing wrong or anything else. But nobody looks at Hunter Biden and what a crook this guy is. I mean, he is linked to more shady deals than, than anyone can, can count. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. And we're not even talking about his personal life, the drugs... The uh, illegitimate child born in the trailer park in what is it, Arkansas or whatever. Hey, I wonder. I wonder if uh, that little child is coming up for you know the White House Christmas and you know maybe later the Easter egg roll and all this. I wonder if the little the little spawn of Hunter Biden, whose grandfather is the president of the United States, I wonder if she'll ever see the White House uh, um, on anything except television. Probably not. Probably not. But you have Hunter Biden owned by the Red Chinese. The same as Dianne Feinstein. The same as Eric Swalwell. You know. <laughs> and they get to him with different things. <clears throat> um, they got to Swalwell with women. <laughs> so, you know, he's he's kind of the, the emerging Bill Clinton of, of all that. They got to... They got to Hunter Biden with money, and they got to Feinstein with a servant. Her her chauffeur for twenty years is uh, was it you know feeding info, a de facto agent of the communist Chinese feeding them info, and uh, you know of course her husband had you know business ties and all the rest of it. I mean it's with china it's 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 all so shady it's part of the tragic comic i don't know comic opera however you want to phrase it this thing that washington dc has become you know they they used to they used to blame trump like oh you know he's too much of a celebrity president he's he opens his mouth on everything he's he's not taking the office seriously enough with the proper decorum Look at this scum. <laughs> Look at everyone I just mentioned. They are infinitely worse. At least Trump had an element of honesty that the rest of these people do not possess. And of course, the the latest bit of dishonesty is now just, just in the nick of time, there is a new variant of the COVID-19. You know, the Omicron, or if you're Joe Biden, the Omni-Ni-Cron. He couldn't even pronounce it. He here he is supposedly telling us about it, and he can't even pronounce it. And so, uh, because he's Joe Biden, his racist travel ban is better than Donald Trump, who is obviously a racist travel ban. Maybe the answer is the travel bans aren't racist, no matter who puts them in, no matter if it's Biden, no matter if it's Trump. Maybe those things were actually trying to protect us, but. 
Biden's good race, good his his racist travel ban is good, and Trump's is bad. Um, you know, his isn't racist at all. Trump was the only racist, and I mean, you see how ridiculous that is. The racist word has just become this weaponized invective that everyone uses to to try to you know embarrass or impugn the other side. It, it's ridiculous. So. You know, they find out travel bans are actually a good thing because obviously Biden's doing it too. And the Red Death, uh, the Red Plague, I should say, the new the new variant of the Red Plague is really pulling the uh, Fauci or Fauch head, however you want to put him. He is that guy. That guy, what a cement head he is. I mean, I've seen some stupid people in my life but Anthony Fauci just his track record is so abysmal and he was he was paid to be an expert in one thing and that is these theoretical infectious diseases and he obviously doesn't even know anything about that he can't he, he he's 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 terrible at it his predictions are wrong every everything he's saying is wrong so he's actually he's supposed to be a man who knows everything about a very narrow field of of science he's supposed to know everything about it but as it turns out he's a man who knows everything about nothing he knows everything about nothing so there you go that's that's the kind of uh, people we have um, you know maybe they should revoke his degrees whatever his academic degrees are should should go away but the new variant of the red plague will help keep us in masks uh it, it, they can still wag their fingers at people they can still push the vaccines they can still do all this stuff and and i've always thought you know vaccines are just they're vaccines so you know some people want to take them some people don't the problem is they're forcing people to take it and uh, in my particular situation, I'm going to be forced to take a booster or I lose my livelihood. That's what it's going to come down to. So, hey, you just take the booster, you know, because, hey, you don't want to lose your house, your cars, your, you know, all your good stuff because you're stubborn and don't want to take the, the shot, even though you have reservations. You say, man, I'm not really sure I really need or want this, especially now that the new, the new variant of the Red Plague is really kind of more like it's it's pretty mild symptoms so uh we'll see how this plays out but and apparently if you've had the red plague recently you do have antibodies that will protect you and do they protect you better than the vaccine i don't i don't know if there seems to be a consensus that it probably does so the vaccine might be the <laughs> that might actually be the plan b it might actually be better to go out and catch the uh, new version of the red plague and we'll see uh, of course the answer the, the question i should say that no one is asking and no one wants any part of is you know was this a deliberate release by the communist chinese i mean um there's a lot of good reasons why it could have been um basically they have just like we do an aging population which is straining their social services and i mean face it the chinese don't care about old people in china they don't, they don't care about them so if they can release something that that reduces that population significantly hey that's that's a lot of money they're saving and that's that's kind of the way communists think uh the other thing too is you know gotta remember we raise tariffs on a lot of chinese goods because there of the unfair horrible trade deals that we've that our country has made with them over the years and they had to suck up a lot of that terror they lost a lot of money because they didn't want to lose market share and uh and in retaliation for that they turned the red plague loose on us communist chinese are liars you can't trust a word they say you can't trust anything and of course they turn it loose on us just at the same time they're making some pretty overt military moves towards taiwan which is where some of the chinese were able to escape to in 1949 and actually set up a a decent country and and everything so that that island of decency is really under threat just at the same time 
that uh, the Red Plague is, is uh, you know, running amok through the West. Makes you want to think. Makes you want to think about it. Uh, one other interesting thing in the news, something, something you never thought you would see. Uh, the United States Navy and the Japanese Navy are doing joint exercises, but they've done those for years. And, and they don't really call it the Japanese Navy. I think it's called the Japanese Self-Defense Force because, you know, after World War II, uh, the Japanese were pretty sensitive. And, they, and, and in fact, they never wanted any military at all. They just wanted us to, I guess, effectively defend them forever and say, hey, we'll swear off the military because, you know, frankly, it hasn't been working out so well for us. Um, you know, their their military adventurism seemed to get two atomic bombs dropped on them. And I think they said, hey, uh, that's enough. We're, we're good. We're, uh, we're out of the pool. So uh, while Japan was out of the pool, but over the last, I don't want to say 80 years, whatever 1945 was to now, um, over the last 70 some years, um, Effectively, you know, they have to have some sort of self-defense capability. So they've been building, you know, we give them, you know, we give them F-4s and F-15s. So they have something that looks like an Air Force. They do have some ground forces and, you know, they have something that looks like a, a small army anyway. And then they now have a, you know, something that looks like a Navy. And that Navy actually has, they're more, they, they call them, amphibious assault ships or something but they're really actually aircraft carriers so for the first time since world war ii japan actually has aircraft carriers and in the ultimate twist of irony they're doing joint exercises with the united states and they're essentially becoming a friendly ally force multiplier for the united states in the pacific never thought i'd see that and i don't think it's a bad thing i don't think that's a bad thing at all i think you know we can't continually defend these countries in perpetuity just we yes they can be under our nuclear umbrella they can be under some of our strategic things and yes we can definitely have aircraft carriers floating around and and protecting them and army bases on far reaches and air force planes but you know we can't defend them we can't, we can't defend everything so they're going to have to contribute too and uh the Japanese seem a lot more willing to do that than NATO does. They seem to be cheaping out, but that's uh, never mind. That's that's because you know we we always insult and and uh, alienate our allies when the Republicans are in charge, and we insist that the uh, uh, NATO allies do what they're supposed to do. And then when the Democrats come in, why they just turn a blind eye to that. So anyway, uh, getting to some gun stuff. I saw the horrid new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, which is Thank God Daniel Craig's last stinker that he's going to make as James Bond. Um, first of all, <laughs> it's, it's, of course, it's, it's, it's just horrible. You know, you, you can play James Bond probably for about 10 years, you know, the, in, in, in a normal human lifespan. And they keep stretching these guys kind of beyond that, you know, um, every, every one of the actors. But Craig was never that good in the beginning. He was never that good. He always looked... To me, he always looked like he was a, a tradesman or something. He never looked like suave, sophisticated, you know, the ultimate James Bond is still the young Sean Connery, you know, the guy who was suave, sophisticated, but rough and tumble when he had to be. Daniel Craig could never really pull it off, and, and he he just has that... You know, they used to have a term, they, they called it a whiskey face, and he does have a whiskey face. I mean, he, he just does not look, he's not a handsome man, he doesn't look like, and of course, his his love interest in this is like some girl who looks like she's about, he's old enough to be her grandfather, or at least, at least her father, if not her grandfather, and, uh, you know, it, it gets worse from there. The only bright part of the movie is he does use a PPK in a couple places, and there's some, some good scenes where he's using, uh, you know, M4 style style guns that's that's about it the rest of it is a stinker so you got to hold your nose and it's not a short movie it's like two hours and 43 minutes it's one of those movies you say didn't shouldn't this have ended like 10 minutes ago i mean it just goes on and on and i don't know why they do that you know it's you know at about two hours people are done with a movie and uh this one was the same way. Um, 
you know, yeah, there's the Aston Martin DB5, which is kind of cool, you know, the old, the homage to the early Bond, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's all pretty good, uh, you know, as far as all that background stuff, but his acting is just horrid. He's not witty, he's not, he's not sophisticated, he's not suave, he's just sort of, you know... You know, just a guy who could be coming in to brick in your patio, or he could be the guy who's putting in your septic tank. I mean, that's that's the guy he is, and uh, that's not James Bond. So, yeah, that was a complete stinker, but some of the gun stuff was pretty good. I, I do give him that. In case you didn't know, uh, Brownells, 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 they are coming precipitously close to doing what I think they should have done a couple of years ago, which is, people like the AR-180 gun. They they like it. It was it was a stoner design. It, it was, you know. And there's a lot of lore and stuff about it. You know, the the one story as well. This was cheaper to make, and it didn't require the uh, the the kind of forging techniques and things needed for the AR-15. So this was kind of a gun that gave you very similar capability for, and was a lot easier to make. And therefore, you know, other countries that couldn't didn't have the technology to make an AR-15 could make this and be just as happy with it. None of that ever panned out, if it was even ever true. Um, none of it ever panned out. A lot of 5.56 guns that rifles that are out there uh, have kind of copied some of the design elements from the 180, so it's kind of a progenitor in that. But it, it's never been a serious threat to dislodge the AR-15 from anything. But they're cool guns and. I really like them, but Brownells now makes a lower, well, or they market a lower that, um, you know, it's it's essentially an AR-15 lower. It takes all the AR-15 internal parts and AR-15 magazines, but it looks like the, um, the old AR-180 lower, which is nice, and if they would just, now their uppers, they, they sell AR-180 uppers that are like modern, you know, with these full-length rails and all the rest of this stuff on them. And those are, like, really expensive. Those those babies are, like, 800 bucks. So you're going to be... To get into this, you're into a K. And you're going to get a modern AR-180, which, you know, I don't want... I want a 1960s-looking AR-180. <laughs> so if they would come out with a retro upper that fits on this lower, they have got a winner. They have got a complete winner. Um... It would be absolutely great. So we'll see if it happens. They're they're close, and I mean it wouldn't take much now. I mean, it wouldn't take much now, um, and it would be a great addition to their retro AR lineup. Although you know they've they've stopped making the proto AR, which I think was their best one. But that's just me, and that's just my taste. So anyway, but Brownells has got it, and they're getting close. Okay, let's do a cast bullet update. Um, unfortunately, the way the time is working out for me, I'm not actually shooting any. I'm still making them and still powder coating them. Um, but just as a quick update, yes, I'm, uh, I'm working on 30 caliber 100 grain bullets for Broomhandle Mauser. I've got those done. I've already completed and I'm very happy with the 200 grain bullet for 38 Smith & Wesson to replicate kind of the British Army service load, which, man, <laughs> that, is not, that is not a great load. I mean, that you know, there's some things are good ideas and some things that are bad ideas, but a 38 Smith & Wesson, which they called the 38200 because for some, for some inexplicable reason, they decided to put a 200 grain bullet in it. Um, then when the Geneva Conventions came out, said no more lead bullets, basically, or Hague Conventions, I guess is more correct. Um, they went down to like 175 grain FMJ bullet, which, you know, has got to be... <laughs> I mean, if that thing's hitting, if that thing's hitting 500 feet per second, I'd be amazed. So it's it's a pretty uh, pretty low performing cartridge, but you know, um, and I I covered it in another podcast, but you can make those. Uh, you can even if if you can't find thirty eight Smith and Wesson brass, if you're willing to go through the the, the agony of cutting down the thirty eight special brass, you can get some usable brass um, out of it, and the pressures are so 
you know low and it's so weak that that even the dimensional differences between the 38 special and 38 smith and wesson don't seem to matter a couple of other bullets that uh we're dealing with 100 uh 30 caliber 150 and 180 grain um powder coated cast bullets for 30 30 um i think that's going to be a winner the uh i'm going to try the 180 uh 30 cal 309 bullet in um 3040 crag and see if that that works there if that doesn't work i've got a, a 312 bullet i can use and i can also use that 312 bullet in uh, 303 british and the beautiful part about powder coated bullets are is that you can push them a little bit faster they're not as good as a plated or a jacketed bullet but i might be able to push them fast enough so that they can uh, um, you know it's more like shooting the service cartridge than it is shooting the the kind of uh, minimal power lead bullet handload. So we'll see. A couple other exciting ones. I've already mentioned the uh, 208 grain uh, wad cutters for 44 caliber. I also have a 310 grainer, and that 310 grainer will be powder coated. And I think I can. The starting load on that pushes that out about 980, 975, 980. You know, in the book, that's the book velocity. So. What that'll do in a Super Blackhawk, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, it's almost 1,000 feet per second with a 300-grain bullet. The the question I'll have is, will the accuracy really be there? Will it will it actually be going fast enough to stabilize? And we'll see. And, unfortunately, that bullet is so heavy, the faster you push it, the more recoil you get. And you could, you could easily get to unacceptable recoil pretty quickly. So we'll see how that shakes. But that's the cast bullet update and uh, you know now is a really good time for for bullet casting because the molds are for the most part in stock and available uh, Lee is kind of caught up for a while there you couldn't get anything um, and you know or if you did it was just luck you know but they're pretty pretty good now and uh, so you can get that you know the furnace and all that I mean it's it's something you can do when you know if you're running out of primers and you say hey you know I need to <laughs> I need to I need to throttle back or the if the cost of uh, factory ammunition is giving you a conniption or can you even get like I don't think you can buy 30 40 crag ammo right now you can't can't buy it 303 you you really can't buy used to be those were staples man you could uh, you could go anywhere because there were so many surplus guns that had been sporterized and people used those cartridges. I can even remember back when 7.7 Japanese was fairly common. It wasn't everywhere, but you could you could put your hands on it. Now, all this stuff, you either go to a custom loader or you load it yourself. You know, that's, that's just the way it goes. Um, so you know that's you're gonna have to learn if you have something out of the norm and and part of the reason is because there's they're inventing new cartridges it seems like every week even when they don't have the capacity to manufacture the ammunition for them these things are these things are popping up so um it's not like the old days where there might be 20 rifle calibers that were that were used by 99 percent of the shooters now you probably have 150 calibers that are used by 80% of the shooters and then the other stuff is just falling off the the edge of the world there so that's why cast bullets are important because you can if you can get a hold of some cartridge cases you can tailor and make some of your own loads okay that does it for the the news and the gun news that I've seen and now we can get into really what is my favorite part of doing a podcast which are questions and answers they've been a little thin this time but I've, I've managed to uh, scrape together some so we can talk about them uh, what the first question is what do you think of AR folding stock adapters those are really cool um, at very at the first I'm, I'm like yeah another another gizmo another contraption but um, you know the, what these do is they fit at the very end of your AR the buttstock end in between the receiver and the buttstock and they have a hinge and so you can still have your buffer tube and all that in the in the buttstock and you can just fold your 
your buttstock to, I believe it folds to the uh, left side of the gun. Um, although I, I'm, I, the reason I'm hesitating is the ones I've seen do that, I, I don't know if you can rotate it 180 degrees and have it fold on the right side of the gun. Why you would want to do that, I don't know. Because you, you cannot really fire the gun while it's folded. That's the key, because there's no... There's nothing behind the bolt. There's no buffer back there, so um, it has to be locked in place before you can before you can use it. Um, those are pretty cool. Now, the exception to that would be if you have a piston-driven AR, I suppose that that, and you don't have the recoil mechanism uh, spring and buffer in the uh, buttstock tube. I suppose that you um, you could probably fire it from the folded position. Not that that's really a great thing to be doing but there you go you can do it um, you know I would like that solution much better than an AR pistol with a brace um, I could have the 14.5 barrel with you know the the flash suppressor pinned on so that it makes the 16 inch minimum length legal length and you could have the uh, stock that folds around, and that's going to give you a very compact package with a with a really good barrel length. Uh, my problem with AR pistols are I'm not really sure that the short barrel lengths are uh, are, are really a very good thing. So I would give me a much I, I would feel much better with that weapon than I would uh, a brace, which is always too short, and a barrel that's always too short on an AR pistol. So that's why I think they're cool, and why I think they're they do have some use. I don't think I will go there. I don't really need something that compact. But but if I did, I would really consider that as a um, as a really good accessory and modification for an AR. And I think there are a couple different companies that make them. I'm, the one I've seen advertised the most is called Sylvan. So. Uh, but I think there are probably others. And, you know, again, the longer you wait, maybe somebody will refine them a little bit more and make them a little bit better. But I haven't heard any problems of once they lock into place, they are locked. And, uh, you know, and it gives you a stock that you're kind of used to. Um, you know, most retractable or folding stocks are not very nice or comfortable to use. And... Uh, the worst I've ever used was the G3 with its retractable wire torture device stock, which was nearly as dangerous on the receiving end as it was on the shooting end. I mean, it would just beat you, beat your face, you know, brutal, just kind of recoil, turn your shoulder into hamburger in short order. Um, yeah, it was not a... <clears throat> I played with one for a while and just uh, gave up on it. As a collectible item, it's kind of cool, but it's nothing you really want to want to use routinely. Um, it it uh, makes the gun very unpleasant to use. So these folding stock adapters are are a great thing. All right, let's see. Next question: Is there a noticeable difference between a fourteen point five and a sixteen inch AR barrels? Um, Having one of each, I would say no. I mean, it, it it's, yes, the 14.5 is a little bit shorter and it's got a permanently attached muzzle brake. So um, it's slightly shorter, but really when it comes to handling and everything else, I, I don't really notice a difference. Uh, there are people who, who want the shorter barrels and I actually thought I was one of them. I thought, well, this might make a difference. So when I built an AR, I put that on there and I really can't tell the difference. So I just kind of look at it and say, yeah, it's the same, you know, uh, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. And I don't think ballistically that inch and a half matters. Uh, the difference between a 16 and a 14.5, you're not really going to lose that much. You pick up, okay, you pick up maybe an inch and a half or an inch. I think they use a slightly longer flash suppressor. I'd have to go check. But, um, yeah, it's you know, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It doesn't make that great of a difference. But you're also talking to a guy who my favorite barrel length is 20 inches. I mean, I just like the 20 inches. I think they, they handle great. They look great. They, they work. You get the velocity you're supposed to get out of it. And, you know, I just think that... Uh, you know, 5.56 five, in a 20-inch barrel, most people don't appreciate what a winner that was. 
that was a winning combination. And a lot of people say, think it's passe you know it's it's like well they're all like that so you know i want something different it's like it's like the people who read shakespeare and go man this guy talks in cliches well they became cliches after he wrote them obviously well it's greatness um has been copied so much that it's it's just become ordinary but it really is a great solution even a lot of foreign rifles have the the um 20 inch barrel because it 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 at, with 556 it gives you just that right combination of velocity and accuracy so anyway that's a, a good getting off the point but no i don't notice a big difference between those two. Oh, this is a very interesting question and i have an equally interesting answer and there's no right answer to this but what is the most underrated service pistol and uh i have to say that, that took me a while. I go, well, you know, underrated. What do we mean, you know? Uh, one that just nobody talks about anymore. Nobody, a great pistol that nobody talks about anymore and that you don't see anymore. And so that's kind of how I framed that. Okay, so one that fits both of those, which I thought was just a marvelous pistol, was the, and you might have to look this up on the internet, so be prepared to Google, um, it's the Walther P88, and it was a late 1980s incarnation Wonder 9. It's and it's you know double action, single action, high capacity, beautiful gun, a beautifully made gun. That's back when Walther, before they got into the plastic craze, you know Walther made some great guns and this was this might have been their last great automatic although p99 is pretty cool too but um this came after the p5 so the the p88 is probably like the beretta 92 probably the ultimate wonder nine pistol when they called these pistols wonder nines was probably the p88 and uh it's it's an outstanding pistol you never see it anymore um I was actually stationed in what at that time was West Germany and it had come out and um, I considered buying one and I'm sorry I didn't although it would be just another kind of curiosity collectible pistol now because no one ever adopted it because you know the Germans looked at it and said you know we still have enough P1s to last and, and pistols aren't that important so they kind of stuck with the P1 for a while. And then I think they replaced it with a Glock or something else. I can't remember. SIG. I'm sure they replaced it with a SIG. Um, then, you know, it came out. Nobody adopted I can't think of anybody who adopted it. So therefore, hey, it's only on the civilian market. So you're not going to see importations of surplus Walther P88s. They're just not, not out there because nobody adopted them. They were expensive. I can't remember what the cost was, but I remember at the time they were expensive and, you know, they just weren't that popular. And nowadays they're impossible to get. Well, I won't say impossible. Nothing's impossible, but it's very difficult to get magazines for them and everything. You could never use one as a carrier duty gun because you, know, you want to you want to drop a hundred and fifty dollar magazine that's. You know, maybe maybe Jeff Bezos could use it or something. I don't know, but um, you know, it's it's just the accessories. The the holsters aren't out there for it. The magazines are hard to come by. Spare parts are probably a nightmare. Uh, you know, all those things mitigate it and kind of put it into you know, put it on the shelf next to your broom handle Mauser because that's what it is now. You know, it is now a collectible pistol that nobody makes or uses anymore but it was really excellent it was very accurate and it was very you know robust very reliable it had all those traits that you want in a pistol had a reasonably good double action pull and a, a nice single action pull but you know when you're competing with accuracy for a nine millimeter pistol um the SIG 210 is very hard to beat. And and actually we have friend of the podcast has purchased an original military model, which is absolutely beautiful. 
came with the original holster too absolutely fantastic combination really really nice but in its service guys it's a very accurate pistol and of course i have the target guys which is a very accurate pistol so you know it's it's awful hard to, if you're looking for proven accuracy in a nine millimeter you know it's hard to get past the sig 210 it's it's hard to look past that and go for something else and i think walther kind of had that and when you're talking about accuracy nobody really cares about capacity that much you know single stack is actually an advantage because you can make the grip a lot more comfortable the um the walther was very accurate very reliable and all that but you know a lot of countries and a lot of police agencies don't want to pay for that kind of quality um witness the glock you know the glocks came out just after the p88 and probably submerged it but the p88 was a great gun and a very very interesting gun which could have had a big future could have had a big future could have been the last you know along with the the, the, the beautiful sigs the the 220s and the 226s and it could have been in a big player in that that time frame in that with that generation of guns so that's the most underrated one okay what is the next question here is why are you critical of polymer framed service pistols or i put service pistols there because it's polymer framed handguns um the, the answer is i'm not <clears throat> they're just not for me i mean i don't see why you would want a pistol with there, there's several aspects i don't why would you want a pistol made out of what to me a traditionalist is an inferior material i don't even care for aluminum frame pistols very much i don't really you know i i go with steel i like steel steel works steel's always worked steel continues to work okay the next thing is there's also design differences the modern polymer frame pistols now there were what i would call transition pieces which are are guns that have like traditional double action single action modes of operation but they're on a polymer frame and, and and all the rest of it but most of them are striker fired and uh, the deal with them is they don't have the trigger pulls that i really like and as a testimony to this you if you listen to other podcasts sometimes i'll even slip up and tell you well it's got a it's got a decent trigger but it's not as nice as a 1911 well, I come from an era where the 1911 trigger was roundly criticized for not being nearly as good as a Smith & Wesson revolver trigger or a slicked up Colt trigger or a Colt Python trigger. So, you know, there, there's, a, there's some relative, um, you know, some subjective standards that are applied there. But I will fundamentally tell you that while I have found them usable, I certainly don't find the triggers on, on these guns uh, pleasurable to use or nice even nice to use I find them functional and uh, you know that's kind of the way that goes um, so that's one of the reasons I, I don't care for them uh, I don't care for the balance of them sometimes when they're loaded they're not too bad um, unloaded they feel very strange to me um, I don't I don't really care for any of that um, so I'm not really, but I think for police departments and now probably military services, although that remains to be seen in my opinion, um, they are they are not going to be replaced by anything else soon. They are very successful as issue sidearms to large agencies, departments, or military services. So they're going to be they're going to be around. So I'm not that critical of them. Um, they have kept the price of handguns low that that's a good thing that's a good thing the material cost and everything else is pretty low so um they're they're pretty reasonably priced but i i don't i don't care for them myself and i don't really don't really like them um and i find it funny that a great high quality manufacturer walther now makes these guns which are a lot more common and a lot more pedestrian my um 
you know the funny part is they you know walter came out and i forget what it's called the m2 target now they have the m2 target steel frame to get a good target gun they had to go back to a steel frame <laughs> you know because there are no really good target guns on polymer frames you might want to ask why that is i i don't know i assume it's because the frames flex i assume it's because the tolerances of molded polymer i.e plastic is probably a little odder maybe a little harder to control than it is when you're machining steel i think probably trying to modify these things after they're molded um, and trying to trying to clean up the tolerances is probably a chore that that doesn't pay off um, so they went back to steel frame and of course the cost went up astronomically the polymer frame target one that they tried and I saw these these were for sale on CDNN <laughs> so that tells you they weren't very they weren't very successful if those guys were disposing them for the for the company uh, they had that one and that was like seven hundred eight hundred dollars something like that and then the steel frame one came out and it was fourteen fifteen hundred dollars and frankly that cost the same or, or actually a little bit more than the sig p210 target which is the gun you really want anyway if you're if you're looking for accuracy in a nine millimeters so I, I see them as just uh hey they're you know they are what they are you know i mean they're like uh, <laughs> they're like military issue issue uh dress shoes you know i mean they're not particularly nice they're not particularly anything they're not particularly what you might personally want to use you know you wouldn't you wouldn't buy a set of military dress shoes for yourself you know to wear with your suit you wouldn't and i feel the same i feel the same way about these they're they're just a little too pedestrian so i don't i don't really care for them and not all of them have been wonderful pistols i mean uh What's the one that looked like a bar of soap that was carved out of a bar of soap? Oh, the Walther Creed. The Creed. <laughs> and I remember they were selling those things. CDNN, to go back to them, was it CDNN or somebody else? Uh, one, of, one of them. One of the people who just sell kind of dead stock discount guns. They were selling those things for, for a long time and couldn't sell them at 249 bucks a piece. And they put them on sale for like I remember one time it was on sale for two twenty nine, and I said, "Shoot, I just ought to just buy one, even if you just you know keep it, keep it in the car or something. It's 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 kind of worth it." And you know for that kind of price point, it's it's fine. It's it's a decent gun. I mean, it's ugly as sin. I mean, it, it looks like it's carved out of a bar of soap or something. It's it's like if if High Point and Walther got together, this is what they what they would produce. Um, so the creed was out there but you know they sold them all during the during the great gun covid gun shortage they jacked the price up to over three bills they were selling them for like 325 a piece and they couldn't you know they sold them all out so i think walther quit making them 2017 or 2018 and you know nobody wanted them so not all of them are, are brilliant designs or brilliant guns uh, i don't know about the canics you know my my fear about my fear about polymer guns uh, unless you buy Glock, or unless you buy Smith and Wesson, or I suppose Sig, you know, unless you buy one of those, um, you know, my fear is that magazines are going to be hard to find. In fact, if some of these manufacturers were smart, like if you were Canik, you know, they, they're made in Turkey, so who knows what they're thinking? You know, who who knows what they think? But if I were them, I would I would design all my guns to take Glock magazines that's what I would do that way there's never a magazine issue because I've looked at some of these you know low price nine millimeters that are they come from they come from a variety of sources some come from Turkey some come from other places and the the deal with them always is the way they ship with one magazine you you hope you know <laughs> they're supposed to but whether you get it or not I don't know um, and you know what if you've ever bought a gun that's supposed to come with a magazine and it doesn't my my i was lucky the only one that did that was a kalishnikov that, of course ak magazines are easy to find so um but it's not a very good experience if you've got a gun that takes a weird magazine and the gun shows up and the magazine does not 
um, it absolutely and some of these magazines if you could find them they were like 50 bucks if you could find them and there's no guarantee that it's really going to function well in the gun you've purchased because you know who knows I mean tolerances who knows the guy making the magazines are these things even working that that's all happened before so um, yeah so you got to be very careful I wouldn't buy one unless it's a um, uh, made by a major manufacturer you know and you know that okay Smith and Wesson shield you're always going to be able to get a magazine for that you know the the sig 320 and it's all of its variants I don't think that the magazine on those has changed at all I think whether you get the m17 m18 or or, or whatever else um, you get the uh, you get the same magazine same thing with glocks you know the, the different the nine millimeter Glocks, they, they differ in length, I think, but I think the overall magazine profile is the same. So I think if you have a Glock 19, you can use Glock 17 magazines. I think so. And that's all a good thing. So, but, but for the off-branders, man, you're, you're rolling the dice uh, and it's going to be tough. So that's one of the reasons I'm, that's the only reason I can go over. I mean, uh, there are guns that are made for a different purpose than a lot of the guns that came before them and so they emphasize different things which is basically robust reliability over the lifespan of the gun they don't necessarily manufacture those guns to last 200 years they they kind of manufacture them to last and and then when they wear out they they replace them so that's kind of it okay this is somewhat related is the DASA pistol obsolete? Well, nothing's really obsolete, I suppose. Um, I don't really like that word very much because it it, it infers different things. But um, I don't think you'll see anybody designing any more of those. I just don't think. I think the, the ones that are on the market, like Berettas, are still selling. They'll still be out there. And I'm sure that there's, there's a few others. I can't really think of any, but I'm sure there are a few others. I think there are some SIGs out there and a few things. I know Smith & Wesson doesn't make theirs anymore, you know. So I think it will gradually just fade away, and it, it is what it is. It was Jeff Cooper called it an ingenious solution to a non-existent problem or a solution looking for a problem, you know. Uh, I think that they were actually pretty good. They were They were basically designed for the police, you know. It was a policing so that way you could have a loaded round in your chamber with the hammer down and it would take this long trigger pull to do it just as if you'd had a loaded revolver and the the fly in the ointment was the follow-up shots were single action so you had to do a transition that's all there was to it once you got used to that it's not a big deal but it is a training uh it is a training barrier you know you have to train around it you have to train through it and uh the other guns don't have that so I don't think it's obsolete, but I don't think people are going to really make them anymore. And I don't think that, uh, um, you know, you're going to see, you'll gradually see these things fade away. I can't even think that there's a, uh, that there's a department that probably still uses them. I mean, but, but there are people who use everything else, so why not? Okay. Tell me about U.S. Model 1917 revolvers and the 45 auto rim cartridge. Okay, uh, I can do this sequentially. <clears throat> Before we talk about the Model 1917, we have to talk about pistol development for the U.S. military in the early 1900s. Um, after the Spanish-American War, they basically had had it with revolvers. They basically said no. Um, that was because there was some very bad, the Colt Model 1892, I think it's 1894, 95, and then the 1901, were frail and underpowered revolvers, and the U.S. military had enough when, that's just the way that goes. So, rather than rehash all that, they were done with those. They started looking at auto pistols because auto pistols were becoming a thing, and they were they were around. Most of them were too small a caliber, but you were starting to get starting to get service caliber things. So they started looking at Lugers, 
and they looked at 30 caliber Luger and that didn't quite do it but it was close and the US military came closer than most people think to adopting a Luger right around 1900 1901 you know right around in there um, could have could have actually uh, done it before Germany because you know they they did they bought like a thousand of them for troop trials and you know they it largely except for the caliber they were largely um, positive so uh, they, they knew that auto pistols were coming but it was going to be a while and then they had something famous called the Thompson LaGuardia tests which used I don't think they used human cadavers I think they used pigs and cattle and other things and gongs to measure power and all that and what they came up with was hey 45 caliber is the best caliber that just that's just the one we want to use so after that test everybody not everybody but um, 45 caliber became what everybody was was developing but it took a while to develop a good 45 caliber handgun so while that's all taking place US military says hey we need something we need something at least in the interim so they bought the Colt new service in 45 Colt and they changed the cartridge rim a little bit but you know made it a little bit bigger so it would, it would extract a little better um, but it's essentially a 45 Colt and they it was in a Colt new service revolver and it was called the model 1909 a very excellent handgun very excellent military revolver in, in many ways um, they bought some untold thousands of these things you know probably less than 20,000 I think 14 or 15,000 just so that the troops would have a powerful reliable handgun until the development would proceed and a semi-automatic handgun in 45 caliber would be adopted so that all happens and the 1909s kind of fade away a little bit you know they're 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 given to the post office and other places after the 1911 comes out during world war one there's not enough 1911s nor are they going to be able to make enough 1911s which is the key <clears throat> uh, colton smith and wesson say hey we can make revolvers we're making them for the british we can make them for you too um u.s military did not want 45 colt revolvers caliber 45 colt revolvers so smith and wesson came up with a way that they could use a little clip a little spring steel clip and then use 45 acp ammunition in a revolver they gave the uh the innovation over to colt and so we the 1917 revolvers there's one is smith and wesson the other's colt nothing on them interchanges except the the <laughs> the little spring steel clip that you put the cartridges in so that you can load all six and you can load all six chambers at once really it's really good innovation really very cool and it was a uh, a real success but you had these two different types of revolvers after the war these things kind of fade into the background and uh, you know but they're still in use world war ii and if you even pop up in korea you know a uh, brazilian navy adopts them in the 1930s you know it's really good really good gun so you have two 1917 revolvers one made by Colt one made by Smith & Wesson that take these clips that will, that 45 automatic 45 ACP ammo will fit into um, that was kind of looked upon as kind of a pain in the butt to to do to load these things for civilians to load and unload and a lot of these things became surplus after World War One and Smith & Wesson kept making them I don't think Colt did Colt did not as I'm thinking about it but um, Smith and Wesson kept making it so they came out with a cartridge called 45 auto rim which was a 45 auto it just had a big fat rim on it so you could still extract it out of these revolvers um, a great unknown cartridge which I use to this day and I love it I think it's awesome it, it just really is with a 250 grain bullet man it is great it's a great cartridge so anyway um, that is the the quick upshot of the 1917 revolvers they were a great wartime innovation to get enough handguns into the uh, the hands of the troops. And as I said on a previous podcast, I ran into a guy who was a docent at the World War One Museum, and he swore that these had just been given to African American troops because you know they never got the good stuff of anything. They never got the good stuff, so they got the inferior revolver on top of everything else. Um, that that's blatantly untrue, but you know you will hear some nonsense like that but they were actually considered um, 
excellent revolvers. They far are far superior to the Webleys and far superior to uh, uh, some of the other things that are out there. So um, probably the best military revolvers ever made. Hey, that's it. Uh, okay. Do 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 do. Well, here's a related question: Why do revolvers refuse to die? They should have been obsolete years and years ago. Why are they still around? Why are people still making them and using them? And I've essentially answered this before. Um, I can't speak for everyone, but the reason I think revolvers are still around is because they're accurate, they're reliable, they're powerful, uh, they're they're easy to shoot well. Um, those are about the biggest things, and a lot of people value that. I value that, and a lot of people value that. So I would say that that's, a, uh, that's, that's what I would call it right then and there. And that's why they're still around. And it's the, the ability to fire ammunition that does not have to go through a magazine and up a feed ramp and into a chamber, that you basically chamber it with your fingers, and the uh, chambers just revolve around a center axis. Um, make it a very very reliable gun so there you are that's why people use it and they can be chambered in very powerful calibers so that's that's why that is okay here's our last question is the submachine gun obsolete pistol caliber submachine gun uh, probably probably for most purposes it, it could be that could be viewed as that um, simply because it doesn't have the range and it doesn't perform particularly well against body armor but in the real world that's what that's what a lot of the pundits will tell you or, or a lot of the commentators will tell you in the real world you're not going to find a lot of body armor in places that are warm like Africa or even the Middle East or even Central America, Southeast Asia. I mean, people aren't going to wear interceptor body armor the way we did in Iraq. They're just not going to do that uh, for two reasons. Number one, as I said, it is the climate and you have to be in, um, you know, pretty good physical condition, the conditioning to be able to, to wear all that uh, at the time when it matters, which is all the time, uh, is going to be, you know, is going to be something that uh, you have to look at. So a lot of a lot of third world countries don't have don't have that. Uh, they don't have those kind of conditioning programs. They don't have that kind of strength because you know they perhaps don't have um, recruits who are nourished as well. You might see it on some tier one teams, some sort of body armor, but you're not going to see that as general issue. Next thing is, um, you know, it's it's just expensive. It's very expensive, and a lot of countries cannot afford that so therefore they're not going to provide that you know maybe maybe they're their top guys tier one you know a small team might have it and chances are they've gotten it as military aid from somebody but you know general issue especially for conscripts you're just not going to see it so then the only real problem with a submachine gun is is range because it doesn't have the range of a 556 or 762 by 39 or 545 uh rifle essentially carbine length type type of gun and you know that can be mitigated a lot of ways because a lot of times like police forces don't really need a lot of range they just need firepower so a nine millimeter submachine gun is a very useful weapon for police or in an urban type setting where you're not shooting hundreds of yards you're shooting in maybe 10 or 15 or 30 yards uh, it's also a good PDW. You know, if the enemy's closing in and gets around, it's better than a pistol. So it's a good PDW for for uh, people who cannot uh, do not have access to a larger weapon. The thing that's killed it is is usually nine millimeter submachine guns are just as heavy as a service rifle, and you know you don't have to fool with other. You know, if you if you can give everybody an AK. You don't have to fool with different magazines, different caliber, different anything else. So that's that's been the thing that's really kind of pushed it out. There are some mission sets which could 
uh, benefit from a 9mm submachine gun, especially if you're shooting suppressed and, and all the rest of it. But again, that is kind of elite force type stuff those mission sets and they're not going to be the average you know your face it your cook or your truck driver does not need a suppressed nine millimeter submachine gun um they're probably just going to have you know the regular right ak type rifle you know or if they're fortunate enough to have some sort of m16 variants they're going to have one of those so it's not obsolete but it's the role that it originally filled in world war ii has has been significant its market share has been decreased by the assault rifle so uh you know the the selective fire intermediate cartridge rifle has sliced very heavily into what the submachine gun used to do so that it's not obsolete but you're not going to see them around you'll still see a few of them though that are they're still developing a few here and there you know you see them and usually they're optimizing them for for sights and and compactness and other things but uh, they're still around, but you're not going to see them the way that they were in uh, the Second World War, Korean War, or even the Vietnam War. So there you go. Okay, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. Again, you can always email questions to kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or post them on Podbean. And this is brings to a close the 120th episode so this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>